this Memorial Day, let's remember the families of the, the uh, fallen soldiers. And I want to kind of give you a different uh, mindset about that in a way, um, as Memorial Day is honoring those who have uh, not come home. But one thing is for sure, I have a lot of uh, friends who are uh, military or prior military on my Facebook, and I, I've noticed an alarming rate of uh, suicides of those who have served overseas. Many times we think of those that uh, didn't come home or those who were, were uh, taken out by any enemy fire or in the line of duty. Uh, but you know, uh, not coming home sometimes means that you physically came home, but mentally they didn't come home. And so I want you to just keep those families in prayer. There's many of them. Um, I, I just can't believe uh, this morning I was sharing with Jen that another one of the wives of uh, one of our soldiers, he had committed suicide and... and uh, that it was all connected back to his time overseas and they never came home the same. So let's remember those who, who have served. And I do want to say thank you also, uh, Pastor Vincent, he'll be in second service, and the youth, they did a wonderful job with, with uh, the uh, fundraiser yesterday. Um, I even bought a few things. We get rid of stuff, you know, that's what I joked about, garage sales in Arkansas, you pretty much buy stuff to sell later for a lower price at your garage sale, that's pretty, pretty much how that works. I was a little bit of trouble because I came home with a bunch of uh, dollhouse toys for uh, Lily, which uh, I was told she doesn't need, but it was fun nonetheless. Well, I don't want to take too much time away from uh, the message this morning, I um, <clears throat> was here uh, not too late, but fairly late last evening. God's just been stirring in me since we ended last week kind of halfway through a sermon. I knew in the beginning I wouldn't probably get all the way through it. I had hopes I would. But I'm, I really see God's timing now of why uh, I wasn't able to get through that. But today we're venturing into part two of the Apostle John's case for Christ. If you remember that last week I said this message has been kind of a culmination of several messages over, over a, a good period of time for me, some recent messages and some others. And so we're looking at the chapter 2 of the book of John. If you have your Bibles, you want to prepare to be uh, in the same passage. Chapter 2 in the book of John. So if you're flipping through the New Testament, you'll go Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I want to just stop and, and pray over the message. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for this time this morning for us to come together. Lord, everyone in this room has something on their mind. Lord, it may be focused on you or it may be on what's happening after this service or this week or their troubles. Or God, even just trying to figure out if uh, this church should be their home. Lord, if uh, this minister stand before them as someone who uh, you've chosen to lead them, God, or, or whatever's on their heart or their mind. God, I pray right now that our, our focus, you'll help us turn it to your word. Because one thing is for sure, you have planned the service before time began. And that you've strategically moved in our lives that we're all here. Lord, we got here different ways and different things might have stood in our path. But we're here today and God, you have planned for us to leave different than we came. And I pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week I started with an overview of the book of John, and I've uh, summarized that a lot shorter, just so if you were not here last week, you don't feel lost. You're going to get the same intro as last week, maybe just a little shorter. 
But remember, I reminded you last week that, again, that John has written this gospel for one purpose, really. It's a twofold purpose, but for one purpose. See, John's gospel is a collection of evidences. When we talked about the case for Christ, John's case for Christ, we're literally, in a way, in our minds, putting Jesus back on trial. We're putting him on trial because whether we want to admit it or not, many times we do that day in and day out anyway. When we worry, we aren't trusting him for our, for our provision or for our rescue or whatever it is. When we, when we get angry, we're not trusting him that he is our great defender, that he is our great uh, judge, he is our great equalizer. So you go down the list, but we put him on trial many times in our life. The whole purpose of this gospel is just to line up supporting proofs for the deity of Jesus Christ. You see, I stand up here many times as a pastor's son who grew up in church, as someone who ran from God, and I believe, whether I'm foolish and I, I think I believe something that's not true or not, I believe that I could almost be in the hearts and minds of every person here because I believe you can only go so many times around the subject of Jesus Christ and faith in Him before you've hit every topic, every question, every doubt, every concern. So while you may sit there and think, I don't understand where you're at, I don't understand where you've been, maybe not. Maybe uh, you've got addictions I've never had. Maybe you've got family problems I've never had. But the simple fact of the matter is, where we have an equal playing field, is we all have to answer this question, is Jesus Christ the Son of God? Is He living? If so, and everything's true, then my life has not only the potential to change uh, and conform into what He's created me to be, but if I'm willing and allow Him to, then that's exactly what will happen. So if you came in here with problems or concerns or, or uh, trouble or strife or questions about your future, whether you want to buy into the fact that God has put me here or whether you can listen to me or believe what I say, God's Word can prove to you today that there is power in His Word. There is power in the fact that He is a living, breathing God and you can leave here different than you came. Not by some crafty words that I give you. Not by some awesome presentation that all of a sudden, out of all the crummy sermons I've ever done, God lights me up today. But the fact of the matter is, if you're expecting Him to do something in you today, then that's exactly what will happen. See, John's purpose, the twofold purpose, he takes an apologetic style, uh, which just means that he's giving evidence that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And this purpose also takes on the evangelistic style. In other words, he, he wants you to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, not just because he wants to be right, but because if you believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, then in believing that, you'll have eternal life. The man who wrote this book, literally, if you believe this and you run the race, you go to the end and you end up in heaven, you'll, you could be face-to-face -face with Apostle John who wrote this book. You can be face-to-face -face with him. That is his purpose, twofold purpose. If you also remember last week, John's book is divided into um, sections, and these sections are chapter 1 was verbal testimony. So in other words, John's testimony and those who know of Jesus, John's testimony is testifying that he is the Son of God. Then you have chapters 2 to 12 is his public ministry where we'll focus mostly today. And then 13 to 17, chapters 13 to 17, his private ministry. And 18 to the end, his death, resurrection, post-resurrection appearances. 
And so with this short recap from last week, we should all have the same basis to understand John's gospel here. So now we have uh, to look at a recap of the story we got into, chapter 2, the wedding at Cana. If you remember, Cana is a small town. You think of Arkansas, like Toadsuck, Arkansas, or those places that are one-stop sign stop. You know, there's like 12 people or better in this town. It's nine miles from Nazareth. That may ring a bell if you know Scripture a little bit. Jesus' hometown, Mary, the mother of Jesus. So you've got these two, it's like Bentonville and Rogers back in the day. Bentonville used to be the little town. Rogers was a big town, right, if you were from here. And so when it was small, you know, in fact, just recently, I was in Benton County Jail visiting some guys. I see another jail minister, and I'm like, I know you. And it was a guy who had been born and raised here and, I remember seeing him around Rogers when I was a kid, and I was like, well, small world, and, you know, but things are growing around here. But in Nazareth and Cana, these are a small place. And so Jesus and some of his disciples, who a few of them were from there too, they're really back on their own stomping grounds as Jesus begins his ministry. Now, I want you to, I don't want you to get droned out here and lose track of what's happening. Because it's very significant that Jesus was in his hometown. This is as much important to the story as anything else today. This happened, this miracle that happened at the wedding in Cana, um, it didn't happen in Judea, it happened for his family and his friends. They were the first ones to recognize what he had never demonstrated before. And that was, he is the creator God. So he starts his miracle ministry with a friends and family miracle, if you will. He starts, it's kind of like if you're starting to sell insurance. They're going to draw a big circle on board, and it's going to be you, and they're going to draw little circles around it. It's going to start with your dad, your mom, and all those. That's who they want to sell to, right? So this is a friends and family miracle. And this is happening at a wedding, which there is no occasion like it at this time. Now think about it. If your town is too small to have a parade because it'd be the same 12 people with no spectators, right? If you start a parade and there's nobody to watch, there's no parade. But what can be a big event in any small town? A wedding. Now you might be marrying the only other people in town that aren't related to you, thus completing the, the circle. <laughs> but, but it's the biggest event that there is. It's at that, it's a celebration. In this story, it's in full swing, and everybody's having a wonderful time. That's the party we're being introduced into. But then there's something that goes wrong at this wedding, at this big occasion. And it brings embarrassment to the groom. And then there comes a predicament in verse 3 when the wine ran out. That was the main problem. When the wine ran out, this is a major catastrophe. This is a colossal embarrassment. Because if there's anything that the bridegroom had spent a year trying to prove, it's that he could take care of his bride. You see, this wasn't so much about just running out of wine. Because if you think that, then you tune this story out because you're like, I can't relate to this. Man, I got bigger problems than I'm at a wedding and there's nothing to drink. I mean, bills, uh, addictions, whatever it is, I've got bigger problems than this. So if you start to just take that from the story then you've missed it because if you remember what i said before when you asked a girl to marry you in this time you didn't just say okay now we're going to set a date 
and I'm going to let her pick out the stuff and tell me where to be and what, you know, all that. See, it was different. The pressure was on the guy back then. You had to build a house for your wife, and you were given one year to get it done. Now, that didn't mean at one year you're automatically done. The father of the bride actually got to pick when you're done. So you're basically proving to him and everyone else that you can take care of her the rest of her life. You're going to build this house out of your own resources. It's very expensive. You're going to keep working on it until the father says it's done. And um, he had to acquire everything that was necessary. He had to demonstrate his ability to take care of her for the rest of her life. Her father was handing over to him a prized possession. Literally in that time, it was looked at like handing over a prized possession. This running out of wine was a bigger problem than just thirsty guests. And maybe, maybe he can't plan for the future. Will she ever go without something to drink or eat if I let this guy marry her? I mean, this is what all of you fathers who marry off your daughters fear. I mean, can he might buy this old scratched up cat scratch couch at a youth group fundraiser? And then your, your daughter's sitting on this couch. That, yeah, I mean, it's a big deal. Andrew tried to buy a couch yesterday, and it was funny from a guy who's been married for a while watching the fact that he, was gonna, he already plopped the money down before she had sat on it, walked around it, looked at it, thought about it, and then changed her mind three times. But he was certain that it was going to be theirs. Needless to say, the couch went on the truck to another charity. But, um, So this guy, you know, is he going to be able to make a living? Is this guy going to be able to take care of you? Is this guy smoking mirrors? I mean, this is the same issue that was going on there that I saw yesterday. <laughs> Only kid wasn't there to add to the amusement. So they ran out of wine at the greatest celebration they would have had and remember, life was tough. Now, now come on, y'all, think about this. You live in Toadsuck, Arkansas. There's nothing going on. In fact, as a young person, all you can think about is getting out of town. And there's a big wedding, and there's going to be wine. Now, we're going to talk about this later. It's not the same. I'm not promoting that we're all getting drunk here, but I'm just saying, this is a place where the choice stuff is served. You know, this is the big deal. And so, so you know, this is a, a small issue. Life was rough. This wedding was going to be one of the big reliefs to their constant oppression they saw around them. The desolation, everything that was wrong with the world. This was their chance for some relief. It was difficult just to survive. And as a celebration like this meant so much to the relief to the whole community, family, and friends, to have something positive, something that seemed so perfect, to, to feel triumph over the oppression they usually felt, and then to run out of wine? Well, what about that wine? Well, it was a, st a staple drink in the ancient world. You see, they made it from all kinds of fruits, mostly grapes, but other fruits as well. And let me just remind you of the fact that wine and juice of any of those fruits was subject to fermentation because there was no refrigeration. So, Everything fermented developed alcohol, right? To quench your thirst with water was dangerous because water was not purified. Yet, as a child of God, as one of the children of Israel, if you quench your thirst with fermented wine, the danger was you would be so thirsty you wouldn't monitor how much you're taking in. you get drunk, which was a sin. So you didn't want to be sick and you didn't want to sin. 
So the way they dealt with this was they diluted the water with the wine. So a lot of times it might start with 10 parts water, one part wine, down to three parts water, one part wine. But the idea was the alcohol and the wine purified the water. So it was, a, it was kind of an even kill mix. You dilute it so it was harder to get drunk, but yet the alcohol and the wine helped to purify the water, at least kill some of the bacteria and stuff. And so that's what was typical and what they did. So you, at a wedding, you would have probably served the stronger stuff at the beginning so that nobody was getting sick because this went on for days and weeks, right? And as the wedding went on, you dilute more so you'd have more. Plus, people are probably getting buzzed a little bit so they're less likely to notice that it's getting weaker. So they have no wine. And um, this would have been uh, a big problem, a big embarrassment. And then the mother of Jesus, who probably is either very good friends with the parents over the bride or groom, um, says they have no wine, but why her? Why, why did she get involved? Well, I don't know, but maybe she was in charge of things. Um, we don't know that, but certainly she knew what was going on. And when the wine ran out, everybody knew the wine ran out, and there's nothing to drink, and there's several-day event. The groom's embarrassed, and some have suggested that Mary wanted Jesus to do a miracle. And I covered a little bit about this week, the last week, but we're going to get into this more. See, he had never done a miracle to this point. I mean, Jesus had waited all this time growing up, never done a miracle. Why would she all of a sudden want him to do a miracle? Because he had never done one. But he had been baptized by John the Baptist. Uh, she knew he was about to embark on his public ministry. He was gathering followers. Uh, this was all new. He had left home. He had gone south. And then you remember that he was also tempted by Satan. In this timeline, Jesus had already gone through where Satan knows he's getting ready to start doing something, right? Knows he's there. Knows he's on the planet. And so Satan throws everything he has at him, trying to ruin the plan just like satan did in the garden of eden with adam and eve so we know that john the baptist had identified him as the lamb of god and certainly that had been circulating um in the little meeting at the wedding if it hadn't before so you've got people who know jesus who have seen him grow up this is family friends and then they also know that john the baptist who was known to be a man of god has started pointing to him saying, this is the Christ. So this is the stage we're seeing this happen. And so maybe she was thinking, wow, now maybe this is it. Maybe the miracles begin here, and that's all possibilities. But I think there's something more obvious than that. I think of it this way. Whenever Mary had a problem, who do you think she went to for a solution at home? As I said last week, there's indications Joseph, Mary's husband, beginning of the nativity, you remember that he has passed away. There's some, some references that give us an idea that maybe he's passed away, and Jesus, as the oldest son in that culture, would have filled the father's role as far as just making sure the house was taken care of, making sure, you know, some of you may know someone where there's not a husband there anymore, and the, and the oldest son or or the one living or the one most available is the one kind of taking care of things, making sure that, that the, the mom is taken care of. And so this is the role Jesus is filling for Mary at this point. But whenever she had a problem, like I said last week, 
think of this. Jesus never had a bad idea. I mean, he never had a wrong solution in his eternal life. He never led her one step in the wrong direction. He had a perfect solution to every dilemma. He had the perfect answer for every predicament. And everything that ever went wrong in, a house, in the house, he knew why it went wrong and how to make it right. He was the most wise, intelligent, resourceful person that had ever lived or ever will live on this earth. And he was in the house with her. Mary had given birth to an easy button. I mean, who know that um, some of us are, are severely challenged in some areas. Like I may know how to work on vehicles, but when it comes to other things, I have no clue. If I had to sew, my wife can sew, if I had to sew, I'd probably sew my finger to every piece of clothing I tried to sew. You know, some of us are domestically challenged in ways, but there's, a, there's one thing for sure, Jesus would know the way to solve every problem. And not only that, he cared about people. He was compassionate, he was kind, he was loving, he could see, see the issues. And who else would she go to? Who else? Who else but the one uh, that, that knew everything? So I don't think she necessarily is asking for a miracle. She just goes to the one she would have gone to in any other situation when something goes wrong. Probably to Mary, even though this is an embarrassment, this isn't a need for a miracle. They ran out of wine. You know, you guys get on the way somewhere. This is going on for days. Let's find some place with some wine. Acquire some wine. And so this is, this is where it gets interesting because she, she goes to the one she always goes to and she simply says to him, they have no wine, they have no wine. She's learned as a widow to trust in the leadership and his wisdom. And then verse 4, after Mary says to him, they have no wine, Jesus says to her, woman woman now definitely we have to look at a cultural thing because in my house with my daddy if i said woman to my mom and my brother's in the room you know basically first of all everything would go dark for a minute give me time to think about what i just did you know and then once the lights come back on i'd realize oops that's probably not the best term for my mother my mom would never have to say a word it would be uh, taken care of but he says woman not mother it's not harsh to say woman. Um, some say it's kind of like a southern expression, ma'am. So if you think Jesus says ma'am, that's basically what he's doing there. It's not harsh, but it's, it's not intimate either. It, when I say ma'am to my mom, it's different than mommy, mom. When you're a kid and you say mommy, you know, it's different than when you say ma'am. You're, you're changing it to a respectful but a less intimate term. It's not mother, but it's courteous. And by the way, it's the same word that he used on the cross in John 19 when he said to her, Woman, behold your son, and handed her over to John. He called her woman there as well. And why? Because he is telling her we don't any longer have the relationship we've had up till now. It's over. Now, I'm going to tell you this is not the main focus of what we're going at today. What I'm trying to tell you this for is so that you get the real purpose. This was a side note. You see, this wasn't even the story. This was kind of like almost the roadblock to what was really supposed to happen, and Jesus just deals with it quickly. 
She's no longer in a position to tell him what to do or to make suggestions to him. This would be a a big change because I'm pretty confident that everything she ever asked him, everything she ever desired of him, he gave out of his love, but she could no longer demand anything from him. She played no role in his ministry. And listen to this carefully. When he was 12 years old, he gave her a preview of this moment. And he was in the temple talking to the officials, you may remember. And he said, I must be about my father's business. Remember, Jesus goes missing for a little bit, and, and Mary and Joseph is like, oh, goodness, all right, put out Amber Alert, whatever. Go find Jesus, find, put out a Jesus Alert, you know, and go find Jesus. But he's teaching in the temple. And so I'm sure there might have been some reactive scolding. That's great. I've told the story my boys, you know, they've read a lot of the, the Bible through their adventure Bible. And one of them challenged me. He's like, Dad, you tell us we're supposed to read our Bible, but then at night you tell us we can't read it. And I said, no, that's not true. You have a responsibility. I've given you a bedtime. If you want to read your Bible, then you discipline yourself to read it up until that bedtime, and then you be obedient, and you go to bed and go to sleep so you can get up the next day and take care of your responsibilities there. And so we, we, we look at this, and so... He was probably getting scolding. like, that's great. You're teaching all the religious leaders in the temple, Jesus. But we're worried sick. You don't just walk off and not tell us where you're at. But he says to them, I must be about my father's business. And this day, his father's business started and his mother's business ended. From here on, he's saying, I don't do your business. I do my father's business. I'm done with my mother's business, fully engaged in my father's business. It's not disrespect. He loves her. He respects his mother. That's exactly what he'll teach to all of us is to respect our mother and father. But I, I can extend that to he never asked for suggestions from anybody. And I'm talking anybody. In fact, when people gave him suggestions, he normally rebuked them such as get behind me, Satan. Jesus didn't play well with others when it came to try and tell him what to do. Now here... His rebuke is a little milder. He says, what does that have to do with us? So it's so critically important. The years of compliance, the years of submission, the years of obedience is over. He's finished with his mother's business, and he's now doing the father's business. He says, from here on, we'll, we'll see John in John. I only do what the father tells me to do. I only do the father's will. I only do what I see the Father do. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. This is the shift. Don't look to Mary as a part of my family anymore. To call her mother would have kept that relationship kind of intact, and woman shows that he is now dealing not with her as, his, as her son, but with the Son of God. And what does that have to do with us? What an amazing statement. By the way, that statement is made a couple times in the Old Testament when it says, what does this have to do with us? It's made in Matthew 8 and Mark 1 and Mark 5. It's a very familiar expression. It's uh, Semitic in, uh, in expression. Literally, literally, it is to say, what to me and to you? What is it that concerns you and me together? Nothing. It's basically giving that question and the answer all in that statement. You and I, this has nothing to do with me. I'm completely free from you as your desires, your wishes, your advice. But here, he sealed this in Matthew 12. You remember the story, no doubt, in verse 46. 
He was speaking to the crowds and his mother and his brothers were, were standing outside and they wanted to talk to him. And Mary and his half-brother, someone said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside, standing out there, seeking to speak with you. Hey, Jesus, your family's outside. They want to talk to you. And this is what he says. Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Behold, my mother and brothers, whoever, as he points to the disciples, behold, my mother and brothers, whoever does the will of my Father, who is in heaven, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. The only relationship I have with people who do my, are the ones who do my Father's will. So in Luke eleven twenty seven, Jesus was speaking, and one of the women in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. And he said, On the contrary, blessed are those who fear the word of God and obey it. You see, we miss this a lot of times. Jesus is painstakingly, continually saying, quit looking to my origins of how I got here. Look at who I truly am. He completely distanced himself from Mary, and he has assumed a higher position, and he ha she has no role to play. He is done with doing his mother's business. He's doing his father's business. And then he says, my hour has not yet come. And this is the first time we see this statement, but we're going to see it again and again. We're going to see it in chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 12, 13 and 17, my hour has not come. And what Jesus is saying is, look, we don't have anything in common because I'm now on a divine schedule that culminates in my death and everything that leads to that. And Mary, thank you for, for being obedient to my Holy Spirit and for birthing me and for being a part of this great story. But now there's a greater thing going on and you've got to sit back and realize your spot. And that's hard for us to hear sometimes because we think that's not how you should be to your mother. But you've got to understand, Mary was only Jesus' mother for the birth, but she was never to be the, his mother in heaven. So he's simply saying, my hour's not come. That final hour of my death and resurrection is set by God, and all events that lead up to it are determined by God. You're outside the divine timetable. And so his mother responds to the servants with, Whatever he says, do it. So instead of this sounding like she's being kind of trite and, okay, um, apparently I ticked you off, Jesus, so I'm done. Do whatever he says. It's actually a submission. This is where we first see Mary submitting to her son, Jesus, as the son of God. It says, whatever he says, do it. It's more in that tone. It's a humbled, okay, I understand. I'm removing myself now. Do whatever he says. And so, then he does what she asked. So we could easily confuse this as he's meeting his mother's request, but he's not. He's made the point, and it just so happens that this is on the divine timetable. Uh, I don't know what, that she knew that, and certainly she didn't assume some great miracle. She probably assumed just some kind of natural solution, but it was on God's list to be done. And then and there, he does it, so we go from the predicament to the provision. And then we can go in, there's, there's six pots of water. This was done um, for cleansing. They'd wash their utensils, they wash their hands, but not for drinking. And then this water gets turned into wine and it's taken to the head waiter. And the head waiter makes a statement of, okay, so most people put out the good stuff at first, but eventually 
they put out the bad stuff, but you've saved the best for last. Now, why is this significant? Why in God's scripture, in his inspired word, would we even care what a head waiter says, right? I mean, if we go by today's standards, you're wanting to know what what the king of the time said or what the groom said or the, the bride said, but why include this servant and what he said? One thing is these are people who have no stake in the game. They're working the event. They're, they're going to testify in this time period. They're going to testify that Jesus performed his first miracle and they really don't have a stake in the game. They don't have a dog in the fight. They're just, hey, all I can tell you is this is a bad situation. I mean, first of all, we're there working. The groom didn't order enough wine. I mean, everybody's kind of getting a little bit twitchy. And, you know, the mother of the bride, is she's over there like this, and the father's pacing, you know, this is horrible. We've, we've guaranteed to, to let our, this guy marry our daughter. We've gone through all this, and now he's screwing it up. And so they fill the water pots. It turns into this wine. And let me tell you something. Here's uh, something about the fermentation. This wine was not made by the grapes. How do you make grapes or how do you make wine? You know, you have to grow the vine, grow the grapes, let it, let it ripen, the smash, the fermentation. This passes through beyond the curse. What's the curse? Remember, Adam and Eve, they then had to work the ground by the sweat of the brow. It was, was going to be painful to produce your food. And Jesus turns it instantly. So this is the best wine ever because it doesn't have to be fermented to taste great. The water is purified. There's no harm in it. Jesus made it perfect. So, so this is an incredible thing that's happened. And um, the what head waiter says to the groom, every man serves the good wine first and the people have drunk freely and, when he's, and then he serves the poor wine. But you kept the best wine, the good wine, until now. So nobody does this. I mean, you and I don't do this. If we had family and friends coming to stay with us for a week, we might grill out steaks the first few days, right? And we might go to the store, and then as we see the budget kind of dwindling, we're like, okay, there's ham sandwiches in the fridge. Go ahead and fix one for yourself, you know? About the time you're ready for them to go, it's kind of, that's the hint. The food is running out. It's getting worse. Go home. And so this is normal. But... This party was in full bloom, and we see this, this predicament and the problem and the beginning of the signs at Cana, and it also talks about what we see is that because of this miracle, some believed in him. And we also see that these things that are written about you, might, that you might believe that Jesus is a Christ, the Son of God, what John was pointing us to. And then um, we also see... We beheld his glory, the glory of the one begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. But then remember what I told you last week, that some of these same people, Jesus comes back later and actually proclaims himself through a dialogue as a son of God, and they take him out to stone him to death. Actually, they're going to push him off of a cliff. And it says he disappears through the crowd. So how can these people see this miracle they, see Je- they know Jesus. I mean, they've seen little baby Jesus. They've seen him grow up. He was so cute at five. He was so cute at 12. He was honorary at 15. And boy, we're glad, you know, or whatever. They see all this in their mind's eye. And then Jesus does this miracle. And then later when he proclaims the Son of God, the miracle as a proof, they want to kill him. You see, here's what the story is all about. Jesus didn't do this miracle for Mary. He didn't do it just because they ran out of wine. 
He chose the hardest crowd for any minister to ever minister to, and that's the hometown crew. Scripture even tells us that a prophet is not welcome in his hometown. In fact, we also see a scripture where it points to this in Mark 6.1 where it says, Jesus was rejected at Nazareth as a heading in your modern Bibles. And it says, he went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is it not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and, and um, Judas and Simon, and and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except they laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And Jesus and he marveled because of their unbelief. They stumped Jesus in a way. I mean, not fully, but he's like, I cannot believe that these people are so unbelieving. And he went about among the villages teaching, so he went on. You see, there's several group of people described in this passage. There's people who saw the miracle and believed right away. There's people who saw the miracle and didn't believe right away. And, and there's people who, who saw the miracle, but because of peer pressure or social pressures, they just didn't want to believe because they didn't want to be outcast. But there's a fourth group that I think will relate this story to us in the church more so than any. And that's ones who are the homeboys and homegirls. They had known Jesus so long that when he tried to do something different around them, they were blinded to the fact that he could do it. But here's the bigger problem. They weren't really expectant of the Messiah like they proclaimed they were. Otherwise, they would have been able to see him as the Messiah. They had been around Jesus so long, they gotten comfortable with who he was. Hey, I get the guy's never wrong. Hey, I get the guy, has a, I have this feeling around him, he just seems to be perfect. I get all that. I've seen him as a kid. I mean, he stands out among all of them. But, you know, he does this miracle, and I mean, that's pretty cool. I'm not sure how he did that. But you know what? Him saying he's the Messiah, I just can't deal with that. You see, a lot of us, we're asleep in our faith. We've gotten so comfortable being called a Christian or saying that we believe Jesus or because we grew up in church with grandma and we learned some Bible lessons, we've normalized everything. And when the Holy Spirit tries to stir us up inside, we're blinded to the fact that he could do anything different than we expect him to do from the past. You see, there's something that, that was in that statement to that, that waiter, head waiter made. Jesus used those statements. He says that, that many would bring the good wine at first and save the bad wine for later, but you save the best for last. What's the story Jesus is trying to tell? Why did he do the miracle? What's the point? He's trying to tell church folks, don't get complacent. You're expecting to get the worst stuff later and the best stuff after. You're going to keep looking back like it says in the Proverbs. Uh, you know, it's foolish to say the good old days. And it's foolish to worry about tomorrow. Jesus is saying, I do something new every day. And when you get complacent and you forget that, then you become part of that fourth group where you think you're all good. In fact, you're having parties and stuff thinking, yeah, I'm all right with Jesus. I'm all right with Jesus, but, but he couldn't stir them. He, he, couldn't, he couldn't wind them up about the kingdom of God. 
He couldn't let them, he couldn't get them to really see the power in that miracle enough that they wouldn't try to kill him later just for proclaiming who he was. So church, let me ask you something today. Have you gotten to the point that you sit in a service like this, you sit in a worship service, you go to another church, you sit there, and it's all about trying to fill that list of, I was a Christian, I went to church, I'm a Christian, oh yeah, I read my Bible, oh, I'm a Christian, I pray. But yet, when the Holy Spirit is stirring during a service, and you feel that, and you see these altars, and you see these kids come up with their innocence, and not even sometimes maybe knowing what all they're doing, but they feel compelled to come up and pray, and you're like, oh yeah, that's okay, that's good for them. I saw that when I was a kid, but you know what, I'm good, I've already done that. I've already been there. Jesus is just all right with me. He's a good buddy. You know what, he needs to be your king, who just so happens to know how to be the best friend you've ever had. He needs to be in a different spot in your life where you wake up every morning expecting something new. Not looking back to the past or thinking, okay, well, that's great. I'm comfortable where I'm at. He's trying to wake you up, Christian. He's trying to tell you that if you will look to me and expect something to me every time you come in contact with me, not just at New Song in church, but when you wake up in the morning and he's drawing you to the word or a worship song comes on, he's trying to stir you to quit being complacent, quit making everything outside him more important than him. If you'll empty all that junk in your heart that you're letting be important to you over God, he will fill it with him and he'll do something new with you. The wine of his spirit will overflow in you. And guess what? It's not just for you. Because if he can do that in you, it will overflow to those around you. There is no revival, there is no spiritual waking ever happened that happened because people focused on what happened in the past. It was because they got sick of what the past was and they said, today, I want something new. And as I was preparing, if you'll, Ken, if you'll come, as I was preparing for this message, and I looked down at our little invite card and I looked down at our our little logo, new song. And I didn't come up with that. Pastor Jim did, said, did. But the very basis of our church, it says, are you ready for a fresh start? And some of us have just let that become a tagline and let ourselves begin to dry up and do church as usual. You know, when Pastor Jim started this church, he told about a vision he had where he'd been in Indiana and it become church as usual. And some people sitting back, you know, on their high horse, feeling like they got it all figured out, and the preachers just wound up today. And he said he just so hungered for people to flood the altars. And his vision was of kids in the old youth group who are out there lifting their hands, praising God. What's significant about that vision is there's an action. He didn't see a bunch of folks sitting in the chairs, staring at the worship leader, staring at the pastor, and, and never letting the Holy Spirit cause them to move into action. The purpose of this church was continually to give people a chance that every time you get in that spot, you become a homegirl or a homeboy to Jesus. You've gotten too comfortable. You know him too well. You think you do. What he's saying is, is no one can know me that well. No one can know me that well that you've got all figured out. You can't just because you're raised in it. You can't just because you've read through the Bible a few times. You can't ever stop feeling like there's more to it and you need to know him better. Oh, that's for the new believers or that's for the people who their lives are a mess. No, chances are, as soon as you say that in your head, your life is a mess. You just won't admit it. Jesus wants you not for 
a visual effect to come to an altar to get on your knees. Not for um, the fuzzy feelings at church. Not for us to feel better ourselves that we somehow got more spiritual. It's because there has to be some sign. You have to, something in you has to say, I'm going to surrender everything. And guess what? Somehow, when we sit still, time after time after time, we get complacent and we'll never move out of our comfort zone. We'll never fully surrender. We'll just keep saying, I'm okay. Next week, maybe I'll feel different about it. I'm okay. Maybe next week I'll feel different about it. Where's your Monday through Saturdays with him? I hope church isn't the place you get the most stirred up. What's more wonderful, and my wife and I have talked about this many times, we could try to convince somebody to her in blue in the face that they need to make a change for Christ in their life. And they can walk out and think, well, I just felt pressure because he's a pastor, or that's a pastor's wife. So I changed my mind about that. But we have prayed for people who we wanted to see their hearts and their minds change, and the Holy Spirit did it. And by the time they walked into the office, they walked into the church, they're already in tears saying, we don't even need to talk about this. God has changed my heart. And you know what? No one, even Satan himself, can't steal that from them because they know it wasn't some person that convinced them. It was the power of God that changed their heart. So today you have a chance for change. We're going to pray, and I'm going to challenge you. I'm not going to ask you any other question and ask for a response except for this one three-part question. I'm just going to ask it, and then we're going to go into a, a time of prayer, and it's up to you how you respond to this. This three-part question is this. Do you get convicted by the Holy Spirit every day? And if you do, do you surrender to that conviction? And if you surrender to that conviction, do you act on it? It's one question, three parts. Do you feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit every day? Do you surrender to that? And do you react to it? And I don't want any liars in here, so we're going to pray right now. God protects our hearts from lying to ourselves, lying to God. Let the enemy get another lie into our lives. Let's pray. Jesus, I ask right now, Lord, that if anyone here can't honestly answer and say yes, if they can't say that they daily feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit, daily they they surrender that and daily they react to that they take action if they can't answer truthfully yes to that I pray against the attempts of the enemy I pray every lie out of this building in Jesus name I bind it by the power of the blood of Jesus that not one person will be able to lie to themselves right now that Lord they may not act on it but at least they can't lie to themselves in their own minds when no one else knows what they're saying but you now, with our heads still bowed and eyes closed, this is where you have the opportunity to react to that conviction. If you're here this morning and you can't answer yes to that, then the very first thing you have to begin with is you need your heart broken for the Lord. You need the shell around your heart, around your spirit. You need that, that homeboy, that homegirl attitude. Like you're just someone that grew up with Jesus and, and you just can't hardly believe he'd do anything different you, then you need to get on your knees, you need to do something, but you need to react to that. You need to take action. And we're going to take time right now. In Jesus' name, let's spend time in prayer.